say that every fast fashion brand out there should be sending an edible arrangement to Instagram every week for the rest of time because nothing helped fast fashion expand and make billions off of selling us more and more clothing than Instagram and all of its outfit of the day posts and its influencers. You know, we always say, and I I believe this to a certain point, that fast fashion democratized style. It made it accessible to a lot more people, although obviously not people who were larger or taller or shorter or anything other than what fashion deemed acceptable. But still, it made fashion and trends a lot more accessible to more people. And Instagram let us believe that we all were style icons. We were all influencers in our own right. And I do actually believe that. And I also believe that we can use our influence and our status as style icons for the power of good as well, right? But in the early days of Instagram, the first decade of Instagram, let's say, it wasn't it wasn't for the power of good. I'll just say that. And honestly, It's uncomfortable to look back and see all of the widespread consumer habits that ultimately began on Instagram. Like, it makes me feel low-key embarrassed that I fell for it, too, without even knowing that I was falling for it. For example, there's the whole new outfit for every occasion or photo, event, etc. phenomenon, We know that this is real. If you're skeptical, how about this? A 2019 survey by UK charity group Bernardo's found that 25% of those surveyed would be embarrassed to wear the same outfit to a wedding or other special occasion more than once. And 37% of people aged 16 to 24 felt that way. We're talking like the fast fashion generation right here, right? Like getting at the heart of it. And... If you don't believe that survey or you're worried it wasn't enough of a sample group, there's been so much other research into that. You can find it all over the internet. But I don't even need to read that statistic to know that it's real, that that phenomenon is real, because I can look back at my Instagram, the Instagram of my friends and peers, and I see it happening. And I definitely remember... I don't get invited to a lot of weddings, so that one is a moot point to me, but I definitely remember needing a new outfit for every party, every birthday, every special date, everything that was happening. And guess what? Retailers love this. They were there to send you emails with suggestions for every wedding, Valentine's Day date, birthday weekend, office holiday party, Mother's Day, Halloween, Friendsgiving, 4th of July, brunch. Yeah, we worked on a whole collection, true story, of brunch dresses at Nasty Gal. I remember sitting in a meeting where we're all like, uh, like, part of my French here, but what the fuck is a brunch dress? Well, someone said, oh no, it's like, it's gotta be like this and not like that. Like not too sexy, but just like a little sexy, but really daytime friendly and very feminine and on and on. It's just like what you put on to go to brunch. And I was thinking like, okay, well, I don't go out for breakfast very often, but when I do, I'm usually wearing like the most comfortable clothing I could find. So this was like a phenomenon to me too. I was like, wow, this is like amazing 
that we found yet another way to sell people clothes. All of these things are literally emails and social media campaigns that I worked on as a buyer. Often the buying team was pulled into these projects to curate a product offering for every possible occasion. Any excuse, any time where someone might want or need a new outfit, and if it hadn't occurred to them already, perhaps this would make them think of it. Like maybe they too did not know about brunch dresses, but now they sure did, and there was a hole in their closet for it, right? By the way, the email out about brunch dresses, and we posted it on social, we had a whole page of stuff curated for brunch dressing, absolute hit. We reordered so much of that stuff and it became a regular thing that we came back to time and time again. Can't think of a new excuse to sell someone something? Just remind them of the first meal of the day right there. A reason to shop. One thing, perhaps ironic here, that always struck me about the endless array of collections that we put together for these events, whether they were real events or completely made up by us, It was how if everyone started buying from the same new collection of stuff, like if everybody went and shopped the same brunch collection, then wouldn't it become more and more likely that everyone would show up to the event wearing the same outfit? And isn't that something, even before Instagram, that we were taught was mortifying? I don't know about you, but... I lived in fear from like middle school on that perhaps I might go to prom someday and someone else would be wearing the same dress as me because it happened on Beverly Hills 90210. I did have a real life experience. It's the only time so far in my life that I've shown up somewhere and someone else was wearing the same thing as me and it was in ninth grade and I had this new bodysuit from the clearance section at Express. I felt really cool and when you know I walked down the hallway by Allison Wachowiak who had the same the same exact bodysuit from Express probably bought on sale too and you know what was the worst part of it is that she looked so much better than me in it. <laughs> Anyway, this is something we're supposed to fear, right? So like, it's just interesting how it could make it more likely if we're all shopping the same new stuff all the time because we need something new. We can't wear what we already have. This whole idea of like needing something new for every situation, it escalated into a new outfit for every single day of life line of thinking, right? We just need something new all the time because who knows when we're gonna take a picture and put it on Instagram right? And it made sense in a weird way because influencers rarely, if ever, posted the same outfit twice. Now, we can all take a step back and we can realize that influencers are literally making a living off of wearing different outfits. That's their job. It doesn't apply to our lives where we don't make a living off of wearing a new outfit every day. We don't need a new outfit every day or week, but Even with us realizing that, knowing that, it gets into our subconscious and it normalizes always needing a new outfit. What we didn't realize as we fretted over finding something new, as we worked so hard, spent so much time finding something new for every Instagram post, for every event, for every moment, What we didn't realize was that the system that was creating all of those new outfits was fundamentally flawed, was frequently unethical, and wow, 
super wasteful. We weren't thinking about that. We didn't know about it because we were just trying to fit in or stand out or at least live our best lives. But that desire for something new that we all seem to be feeling all at once together. Well, retailers made a lot of not so great decisions in pursuit of profiting from our collective hunger. And of course, because this is Clothes Horse, we'll be talking about that today. Welcome to episode 176 of Close Horse. As always, I'm your host, Amanda, and today we will be continuing our conversation about the evolution of fast fashion. So I should just tell you now, because I told you last week that this would be a two-part situation, well, in classic Close Horse fashion, it is now officially a three-part situation. <laughs> I just... You know, I created an outline for this series and I was like, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Okay, cool. Got it. Yeah. Break it into pieces. It's good. It's a two-parter. But this week, as I was working on this, I started to remember a lot of things that I thought would be interesting to you and were an important part of this story. So it's a three-parter. Next week, I swear, I am going to try my hardest. We are going to conclude this series, and I'm going to share some of your audio essays about secondhand, but this fast fashion series, especially thinking about it as it played out in my career, there's a lot of stuff to discuss, so let's jump right back into it. Let's take a moment to thank this week's episode sponsor, a brand that I love and feel very honored to have supporting the show. Seriously, what a pat on my back. Oseduro is a sustainable fashion brand based in Ghana that uses handmade textile techniques to create contemporary garments. All products are hand-dyed and sewn in Ghana with small-scale artisans and manufacturers to support the local apparel industry. This is a really big deal to me because as we've all learned in our series with the Aura Foundation, fast fashion has had an extremely negative impact on the local textile industry in Ghana. So what Oseduro is doing is really important to me. And their clothing is colorful with bold prints and it's size inclusive with many styles offered in sizes extra small to 4X. They are also conscious of waste and they're always developing more programs to tackle textile waste. Plus, they collaborate with artists, designers, and other brands to bring unique and limited edition pieces. Furthermore, this is very important to me too, this is a brand that cares for its workers, priding themselves on taking full-time pay for a four-day work week. The staff enjoys three weeks of annual paid leave, 90 days of full pay maternity leave, two weeks of full pay paternity leave, full health insurance coverage, pensions, and other statutory benefits. This is unheard of in the fashion industry. You can learn more and check out all of their incredibly unique and wearable pieces. They're all going to become the best things you've ever bought and you're going to wear them 
the rest of your life. You can find them at oseduro.com. You can find them on Instagram at oseduro. And guess what? Oseduro has a special offer just for Close Horse listeners. Use promo code CLOSEHORSE20 for 20% off your purchase. Once again, that's CLOSEHORSE20 for 20% off your purchase. And I'll share that in the show notes. Thank you again for your support. I don't even know where to begin with how fast fashion and really fast everything commoditize the ideas of self-care and retail therapy and treat yourself into reasons to buy more stuff. They would take these things that we were talking about amongst ourselves on social media, memeing, joking about, and turn it into product stories, into a reason for us to buy more stuff. And I know that because I worked on that stuff. Okay, let's go back to holidays for a minute, right? We already talked about how like, oh, you're gonna need something for your Valentine's Day date. You need something for Halloween, for Friendsgiving, 4th of July, all that stuff. Every holiday, no matter how small, became a reason to shop. And I wanna be clear that in the beginning of my career, yeah, we'd have a little bit of like holiday dressing stuff, less about like Christmas and more about like New Year's Eve, dressing, right? So we'd we'd deliver a little bit of like sparkly dress up stuff in December. That was about it. We might have a couple like red things for Valentine's Day, but like probably not. We just didn't get into holidays. It didn't, it didn't make sense at that time. But now every holiday, no matter how small, was a new reason to sell someone something. And people loved it. So even if it was like a semi-fake holiday, like National Cat Day, oh well Take 15% off this whole site, right? National Donut Day, just because here's 20% off. This is a great time to tell you because I've always wondered about these like fake holidays like that. Um, At one of my jobs, we specifically would look at that calendar every month and plan out the kinds of product stories and promos and social media posts we could do based on these rando days. I always wondered where they came from because it was so weird. And I I have to say that my favorite podcast actually, or one of my favorite podcasts is Planet Money, which sounds like it's gonna be about stocks or something, but it really digs into so many elements of consumer behavior and capitalism. Like there's literally an episode about the value of dinosaur bones and it was fascinating. They did a great episode about all of these random holidays, not holidays. I don't know what to call them, but, you know, like Treat Yourself Day or Splurge Day or, you know, National Bacon Sandwich Day, what have you. Uh, It's actually a really incredible story. Uh, It really, like, actually touched me in a weird way. Um, I'm going to share that link in the show notes, but you should go listen to it. But let me tell you, Fast Fashion was like, give me all the fake holidays. But they also, of course, were like, okay, now we're going to sell for every holiday, right? The regular, old, boring holidays. So I, I have a question for you. Did you have one of those moms who had special, like, Christmas dish towels and pot holders and hand towels and, like, maybe even bath towels and sheets? And she would pull them out just for, like, the Christmas season, and then they would go back in storage and go away. Okay, I did not have that mom, but my first boyfriend— his mom did. And I remember going to their house 
I'm being sort of like, okay, this is a little bit cheesy, but it's also like kind of cozy and I appreciate it. I would think about how how excited she was probably to unpack that stuff and put it out for a few months. It's fun to be festive, right? But (laughs) now suddenly in the era of fast everything, we've got brands who never cared about Halloween. Now they are selling literal costumes. They're selling pajama pants, socks, purses, underwear, all just for use on Halloween, right? Christmas means selling brand new ugly Christmas sweaters, which totally misses the point of the original thrifted ugly Christmas sweater trend. Gets me really riled up. Valentine's Day means selling you lingerie and dresses, shoes, purses, makeup, candles, new sheets, sex toys. We were working on sex toys at Nasty Gal. We were like, what else can we sell people on Valentine's Day? Easter means pastels and a new spring capsule, always some ditzy florals. Suddenly, my employers were dropping 4th of July collections uh, and dresses for Mother's Day, along with lots of gifts for your mother or for yourself for having a mother. I'm not really sure. Outfits for wearing after Thanksgiving dinner and, of course, for Thanksgiving dinner. New workout clothes for January for your New Year's resolutions. Actually, that's another thing. In the era of fast everything, Every fast fashion retailer was thinking of new categories to sell because as we know, everyone had raced their way to the bottom on pricing and they were all, for the most part, buying into the same trends at the same time. The only way to be more profitable year after year selling at these low, low prices, the only way to increase revenue and make shareholders happy while selling at these low, low prices was... Finding new things to sell. Basically, taking a little bit more out of each of your customers' wallets for something that you hadn't sold them before. By 2015-ish, retailers had already expanded into shoes, jewelry, basically any kind of accessory, but it wasn't enough. So we see lots of hype over and over again for new emerging categories that fast fashion retailers were quick to jump on. Seriously, it was in all of the retail publications. There would be entire panel conversations at trade shows about it. I had to hear about this an awful lot. One category was activewear and athleisure. Suddenly, everyone's trying to make that stuff. We worked on some really horrible attempts at activewear at Nasty Gal. And it basically, like, real talk here is performance fabrics, the kind of fabrics that are used in good activewear, are expensive. Well, they're expensive when you're working on a fast fashion model of really high margin, right? It didn't work for us at Nasty Gal. We bring in the samples in the correct activewear fabric and we can afford it. So it's like, can we swap out the fabric? Okay, can we swap it some more? Okay, can we swap it some more? And suddenly you get like a pair of leggings and a sports bra that aren't going to work well with sweat, aren't breathable, uh, don't stretch and recover properly because guess what? They're not active wear (laughs) items. So that didn't work out very well. Uh, Urban Outfitters actually tried their own stab at creating an entirely new active wear and outdoor brand called Without Walls. Um, They had a flagship location 
in one of their spaces in LA. They It was a combination of their own Without Walls brand product and other like well-known brands in that space. And in less than a year, it was all closed. You can still buy some stuff with Without Walls labels on the Urban Outfitters website, but it's, it's, it's like a non-thing. And we really saw brands like Urban Outfitters and other other brands across the board getting into this space because they were looking at who was being successful out there, you know? Nike, Outdoor Voices, Lululemon. And they were like, why can't we get a piece of that? But the thing is, which I'm going to talk about more in a moment, in addition to those fabrics being way more expensive and not always aligning with the profitability model you need for fast fashion, uh, it's not easy. You don't just say like, here's a picture of a bra. Can you make that? Like it it requires a lot of research and development and fitting and expertise. And you can't have someone who normally designs dresses suddenly designing an activewear line. And it's an investment, right? In the world of fast fashion, you don't necessarily want to make an investment, right? Speaking of things that you kind of need to know to do well, <laughs> you need some expertise, cosmetics, fragrance, and skincare. That was another one that all of the fast fashion brands were jumping on. Suddenly Forever 21 and H&M and Urban Outfitters and many more were selling their own private label cosmetics brands while also expanding floor space and even doing like shop within shop setups. Okay, so what is private label? This is a great moment to explain that. It's when brands and retailers use another manufacturer who specializes in a category to develop and manufacture an item or a collection, et cetera, and put the retailer's own branding on it. So it will look like it was made for and by Forever 21 or H&M or Urban Outfitters or what have you. It may even look like a brand that you've never heard of that isn't the name of the store, but looks like a brand. These are all private label products, right? They're all made in, in most cases when it comes to like cosmetics, fragrance, and skincare. It's only a few vendors, companies out there who are offering that private label service. So a lot of these retailers were buying from the same company and essentially buying the same product. And this would be like fragrances, nail polishes, makeup, et cetera. I mean, you, you saw it everywhere. It was interesting to go to a showroom for one of these these private label vendors in that space and just see on the table all of the different brands they were making stuff for, it was wild because you and I would have thought of them all as very different brands and companies, just completely different customer base, right? But here here it was, it was all the same stuff, right? Okay, another thing that everybody was getting into was intimates and lingerie. Okay, we've talked before about how few retailers own their factories and put a pin in that because we're going to talk about that again when we get to fast fashion 2.0. So you also won't be surprised to hear that the same factories and vendors were making underwear for Forever 21, Victoria's Secret, Urban Outfitters, and so on. And so once again, just like the beauty products, it was kind of the same thing, just with different labels on it. Another one, Home Goods. The same private label situation happening here too, but suddenly everybody's selling jewelry stands and throw pillows and candles and things to hang on your wall, desk organizers. It's all part of trying to get another, just another sliver of your wallet, you know? 
The interesting thing about all of these, which I already touched on, is that they all require a different manufacturing base. And often, especially when we talk about activewear, beauty products, and intimates, a lot of research and development and expertise to execute them properly. To be clear, none of these brands did that. Sure, they might have the vendor who makes bras for Victoria's Secret make their bras, but they might have them make a different bra without really seeing how it fit. Also, real talk, we know that Victoria's Secret bras kind of have a dubious fit in the first place, right? The beauty stuff, it's all the same companies making the same stuff for everyone. It's not necessarily special or researched, unique in any way. You didn't need any expertise to make anything, but you also, if you didn't have that expertise, you wouldn't know if what you were buying from them was good or bad. So a lot of these things kind of failed. Some of these forays into new product did better than others, but they tried it all, except, and this is important to call out here, you know how these brands could have made a lot of money without trying new categories of product? By extending sizes, instant more money coming in, new customers, right? Forget about taking a sliver of your existing customer's wallet, bring in some new wallets to dig into, right? (sighs) So yeah, doing that would have required some investment in fit and design for sure. We know they didn't want to spend any money on any of that, right? You know, someone left a review for a close horse recently, a very nice review, thank you, asking if I could do an episode about why retailers don't make plus-size petite clothing, and I'm here to tell you there's an easy answer. They don't want to spend the money. They're probably also fat-phobic, but more importantly, they don't want to spend the money. And it's interesting because it would be instant money if they did it, but they're so afraid of spending money and it not returning to them immediately because that's the other thing about fast fashion. It's never the long game. You want to make the money back as fast as you spend it. And, you know, extending sizes, it's a slow process. It's a ramp up and fast fashion doesn't want to do that, right? They just, they want their money and they want it now. And that's also why they don't want to design real activewear or develop their real own exclusive line of skincare or make bras that are really good. They just want to sell stuff. So here's something else that fueled fast fashion even more than Instagram, e-commerce, aka shopping online. As I mentioned in the last episode, in the pre-online shopping world, everything we bought had to fit inside an actual physical space, otherwise known as the store. And it had to look non-chaotic and hoardery too, otherwise people weren't going to want to buy it. So there was a very real ceiling, and it was pretty low, on the number of styles we could buy every month. In the first few years after the 2008 financial crisis, when my employer, like every other retailer out there, was beginning to lean into the fast fashion model, we kind of struggled with how to balance that constant newness that was dictated by the fast fashion model, and it's what our customers wanted. How could we balance that with the very real problem of fitting that steady flow of new styles into an actual physical store every week. You know, at first, the stores did look kind of chaotic. So we escalated our markdown cadence. This is the beginning of the, if you paid full price at the store, you would feel a little embarrassed era that we, we know all too well. 
If you recall from the last episode, in the beginning of my career, we bought most items to live in the store at full price for 10 weeks. That's about two and a half months. The idea was that if they hadn't sold out by then and we didn't plan on reordering them, obviously there were bestsellers that came in that we reordered and reordered and reordered, right? But just your average item that was like, okay, but not worth bringing in more of, If they didn't sell out at the end of that 10 weeks, we would mark down whatever was left. And theoretically, almost all of that would sell out in the next two to four weeks. It really worked that way. So effectively, if things are going well, if we're planning properly and we're bringing in the right product, the store would see a complete turnover every three months, except for the stuff that we had continued to reorder because it was really successful. That was the goal, right? Well, that didn't work anymore when we were suddenly offering twice as many new styles every month. It certainly didn't work when we were delivering four times as many styles every week and month. So we shortened that 10-week window that we had allowed for something to sell at full price. First, it was eight weeks, right? Then it was six weeks, and eventually... It moved to four weeks. So we wouldn't mark everything down at four weeks, but if it was slow, slower than average, we would absolutely mark that down and maybe give the other stuff a few more weeks that was doing okay, right? This meant we were doing markdowns multiple times a month. So the first week of the month, we would be taking the first markdowns, marking stuff down for the first time. It would move from one part of the store to the sales section. The second week would be further markdowns from things we had put on clearance the month before, right? Now we would mark it down to an even deeper discount. The third week would be job outs. So these would be things from the previous couple of months that had not sold. We pulled them from the sales floor and sent them off to jobbers who are basically companies that gather all this stuff and sell it off to off-price retailers. Fragile items, however, would be destroyed, meaning smashed or broken by the store staff and dumped into the dumpster. Sure, we didn't want to have it in the store anymore. We needed space, right? But we didn't want anyone else to have it without paying for it. It's the catch there always. Let's talk about those job outs and how that process even changed. Once upon a time, the volume of items that made it to that job out point, meaning they'd probably been marked down two, maybe three times and still just hadn't sold. Very few items made it to that point. It was extremely manageable on a store-by-store basis. So stores would donate to a local charity of their choice, shelters, thrift stores, etc. It was no big deal either way. But over time, the volume was just too high to manage that. No one wanted that much stuff from us. And Since so much stuff was selling at Markdown in the first place, it was imperative that the company recover as much of the cost of that stuff as possible. So that was when stores started boxing it up, no longer donating it, and shipping it back to the warehouse where it would be sent to jobbers. Now, once again, anything remotely large, furniture, throw pillows, quilts, stuff that would be expensive to ship, 
or anything fragile, you know, that could be broken in transit. So candles, glassware, ceramics, most jewelry, fragrance, beauty products, that kind of stuff. It would be destroyed by the staff and tossed in the dumpster. I did an episode a couple of years ago with Anna, the trash walker, and we talked about that so common and it's every kind of retailer from drugstores to clothing stores, high-end, discount, you name it. This is how that happens, right? They have to make room for new stuff because customers want to see more new stuff. And so this stuff has to go away. Yeah, the fast fashion model is at the root of a lot of wasteful and frankly shitty phenomena that's out there right now. (laughs) Seriously, all of this is still happening, right? The waste the short product life cycle, the steady flow of newness. But e-commerce and really the normalization of shopping online allowed retailers to offer even more new products without dealing with the limitation of store space. For example, there were online exclusives, new stuff that was only available online. In the early days of my career, we would just toss a handful on there, kind of just to get a read on what people might be interested in. But soon, more and more of the website was available only online. Also, we would offer more sizes and colors on the website. This meant that retailers could send less units of every size to every store. Maybe instead of sending four or six or even 10 units of every size like they had in the past, they could just send two or three. And if a size was out of stock in those stores, it was no big deal because the store staff could just order it for the customer and it would be shipped directly to their house. Having to accommodate less of every style in the store space meant that more styles could fit in the store space. And as shopping online became the norm and rapidly eclipsed shopping IRL, I mean, ask me how many think pieces I've had to read about the retail apocalypse, so many. Many retailers actually started fulfilling orders from stores. This still happens all the time. If you order a few things online, but they all arrive separately, it's probably because each item shipped from a different store location. Never mind the waste of all of that extra packaging. It it really bothers me. Um, But retailers look at it as like, hey, we save money on inventory, right? So they don't care about the ecological impact of it, the waste of resources for all the packaging. They care about getting the maximum juice for every squeeze, if you will. (laughs) I'll never say that again. I'm sorry, but that is something you say in business. Making your own clothes can give you the freedom to wear exactly what you want, but learning to make your own sewing patterns based on your measurements is truly a liberating experience. The Soft Work Garment Design Course is here to help you do just that. The course is taught by Christy Johnson, who has been studying how clothes are made for over 20 years. While working as a fashion designer, she began to realize that modern clothes were not just overcomplicated in sewing, but also extremely wasteful. When she looked more closely at her favorite vintage pieces from around the world, she noticed a trend. They were all made from rectangles that easily locked into one another. This not only made them less wasteful, but they were also easier to sew. She took these skills and created a clothing design and pattern making framework that she's taught to hundreds of students from beginners 
to advance SOAS. Software course is not about a specific skill or finished product. It's a way of making clothes using easy to learn skills that will set you up for knowing how to design, pattern, and customize garments using your own measurements, not some mythical inconsistent sizing. We know all about that, right? The pre-recorded format of the software course means you can take the course at your own pace, while the live Q&A sessions ensure that you have help when you hit roadblocks. Oh, and you have lifetime access to the course, so you can refer back to the materials at any time. Enrollment closes on September 22nd, so be sure to sign up by visiting softworkcourse.com. To make things more complicated for all of the regular retailers who had stores, who had adopted that fast fashion model of cheap, fast, and always new, well, new brands were popping up who didn't have the financial and planning burden of actual stores. These brands only sold online so they could offer even more new stuff all the time. The first one that comes to mind for me when I think of online retailer with just like an almost infinite assortment of stuff to buy is ASOS. But I worked at two other ones that were playing that game too. When I was working at ModCloth, yes, that's one of them, we literally launched new items every day at noon. And guess what? Customers would show up every day at noon to buy them sometimes placing multiple orders in a week. When I first started, this made me feel kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> like I, I was like, no, I, people do this? I, I don't like this. So we would launch, you know, 20 to 30 styles every day. And that meant that we were constantly looking for something new. Yes, we had our own in-house line with designers and fit techs working very hard to create the best final product, but they would never be able to create these 600 to 900 new styles we needed to launch every month. I mean, we would have needed a team of like 100 people to execute that, and that would cost a lot of money. But fortunately, we had another resource at our disposal, the San Pedro Apparel Mart in downtown LA. Imagine about 300 different showrooms of inexpensive, high-profit, fast-fashion clothing with new arrivals every single week. Well, that's just what we need. And to make things even better, everything you find there could ship to your warehouse in two weeks or less. It's hard to describe the mart to someone who has never been there. It has its own unique smell, mostly kind of like plastic. There's a lot of plastic in the mart, for sure. A little bit of a gasoline smell. We got the smog rolling in. It's one showroom after another with names like, and I'm not making these up. These are all showrooms I have visited. Hot and Delicious, Cotton Candy, Virgins Only. Yeah, that's real too. Showroom is kind of a generous description for what are really spaces cramped with rolling racks of new arrivals and stuff in the works. People are rushing around with racks and boxes full of shipment. Everybody in the apparel mart is working so hard. And every showroom has a bowl of M&Ms. I swear there have been days where I have subsisted solely on showroom M&Ms. I kind of can't eat M&Ms now without feeling sort of nauseous. Most of these brands in the mart 
are really acting as the middleman between factories overseas and the boutiques and retailers that shop there. Some do have their own in-house design teams that really are designing things, but many of them are just buying what factories kind of send their way. In my early days at ModCloth, a big chunk of the business at the Mart was coming from Forever 21. In fact, That's where a lot of the early Forever 21 inventory came from. But over time, Forever 21 elected to cut out the middleman, meaning these showrooms at the Mart, and go factory direct for lower prices, more selection, more exclusivity, and even faster delivery, believe it or not. If you've never heard of the San Pedro Apparel Mart, you may have also heard it referred to as Santee Alley. But if you've never heard of either of those... I wouldn't blame you because it's almost like it's a secret and there's not even a lot of like media coverage of it. And I certainly, working on the East Coast in fashion for so long, did not know of its existence until I moved to LA and started working for ModCloth. I found one great piece uh, from 2018 from Women's Wear Daily about one showroom called Honey Punch. That brand, Honey Punch, made the leap from the Mart to actual brand, at least for a while. I don't think that's still happening for them because the Instagram for Honey Punch hasn't been updated since 2019. But wow, I remember Honey Punch very well. In fact, I can like picture their showroom so clearly, the amount of time I've spent in there. Like when you would walk in, there were racks and racks of clothes and there were some people working in the back, but you'd go up to these stairs to this sort of loft space. And that's where the designers and production people were working. So if you wanted to work on some product development or something else business-related, you would go up there. There'd probably be a bowl of M&Ms, and you would talk about stuff. Uh, It's, like, so clear in my mind. It's like I was just there yesterday. Like I said, lots of quality time at the Honey Punch showroom. We bought from them at both ModCloth and Nasty Gal. And I knew back then that they were doing a bunch of private label stuff for Need Supply, RIP. Basically, they were manufacturing stuff for Need Supply, but rather than sewing in Honey Punch labels, the labels had the names of Need Supply's new house brands. And I I can't remember them, but I remember seeing the samples there and being like, huh, what are those brands? And then being on Need Supply a few days later and seeing it. And then, of course, the next time I was at Honey Punch asking, and they were sort of shy about it, but they were like, yeah, we we are. And I was like, well, that's great that you're making stuff for Need Supply because now I can definitely convince my boss to let you make some stuff for Nasty Gal. So that was the thing about buying from the Mart. The executives at both companies I worked for definitely kind of looked down on that product, not so much at ModCloth per se, but like definitely at Nasty Gal. Like, ooh, it's so cheap, it's gross, blah, blah, blah. And like they kind of... As a result, looked down on everyone who worked there and ran these businesses, which really, really bothered me because actually we're talking about really smart, really hardworking people. And to be honest, the stuff that they were making wasn't worse than a lot of the stuff we were selling. And also we were buying a lot of stuff from them. So it was really silly to be so, I guess, classist about it all. So anyway, I found this article about the San Pedro Apparel Mart, specifically discussing Honey Punch. And there's this great quote in the article from Marina Chianese, who is Honey Punch, who was, at least, maybe still is, Honey Punch's VP of sales. She told Women's Wear Daily, San Pedro downtown was like a secret to some people. And not everybody knew that. And the people who knew about it were killing it and making a lot of money because the consumer had no idea 
what that San Pedro cash and carry business was. So buyers would fly down, fill up their stores, go back and make a lot of money on this stuff. You had all of these Korean owned brands that were from here and they started doing the trade shows and that educated the buyers all over the country. Like, oh, these brands are something. And then they all started buying it. So who shopped and shops at the Mart? Well, boutique owners for one. And many, many boutiques that you go into are primarily filled with clothes from the Mart. I see it everywhere I've shopped. I've shopped all over the United States in all kinds of small boutiques, and more of them than not have carried brands that I recognize from all those days I spent at the Mart. Boutique owners would, from all over would fly down to LA, go to the Mart, and buy a few months of inventory on the spot. Also, a lot of shopkeepers go to Magic, which is the big fashion trade show that happens twice a year in Vegas, and they place their orders there with all of these Mark brands. And of course, they can order them online now too. In the years that I was working for ModCloth and Nasty Gal, more and more of these online-only retailers like ModCloth and Nasty Gal were shopping there in a major way. It wasn't just us. It was Lulu's and Dolls Kill and all kinds of other brands that came and went in that time period. They were primarily selling clothes from the Mart. And I actually was trying so hard to remember. I remember Lulu's briefly had a boho offshoot that had its own website. It was its own brand, but it was all San Pedro Apparel Mart boho clothes. And I cannot for the life of me find it anywhere. It's like it disappeared from the internet. But I mean, I remember it because one of my jobs at ModCloth was to look at all these sites all the time and make sure that they didn't have a lot of stuff that we had because we were buying it all from the same place. Why were we all going to the Mart? Because it was great for all of these smaller online retailers who needed a ton of newness all the time, which we all needed, but didn't have the buying power or budget for a full-on design team. That's the thing. When I was working at my first job, we would buy 10,000 units of something because we had, you know, more than 100 stores. At ModCloth and Nasty Gal, we might, if we felt really good about something, order five or 600 units. But in general, we were looking for, you know, two, 300 per style. And when I started there, this kind of like, it made me uncomfortable in a weird way because I was so used to, I don't know, it, it's it's hard to say this without sounding like a total jerk, but I always felt like I had this leverage with every vendor because they knew the bare minimum I was going to order was three, four, five thousand 5,000 units of something, and most likely it would be 10. And if it was really good, over time, it could be 100,000, you know, spread over a year. And so that meant that I could get the delivery and costing that I wanted. At ModCloth and Nasty Gal, we didn't have that buying power. And actually, as we got closer to going out of business at Nasty Gal, we literally had no power because we weren't even paying for the stuff that we were ordering. And then it was like, oh, man, (laughs) like this just keeps getting worse. So the thing about all this Mark clothing, I mean, one, it was plentiful, right? There was always something new. But even more importantly, or maybe just as importantly, it depends what you're prioritizing, this Mark clothing was profitable. Why? Because customers couldn't just Google it and find it for a cheaper price. And that came back to how it was listed on the brand's website. So 
let's say I was working at ModCloth and I went to market and I bought a navy blue dress from Hot and Delicious. I would have never bought from Hot and Delicious at ModCloth. That was more of a nasty gal brand, but you don't know that. Anyway, so I go there, I buy this dress, it comes in. It doesn't say on the website, Hot and Delicious Navy Blue Dress. We give it a funky name that's like lounging at the library or something like that. And people only know it then as lounging at the library. So if they Google that, it's only gonna bring them back to the ModCloth website. Now at Nasty Gal, we didn't do fun, punny names. Instead, we would just say like, we would name it after a girl or something sexy. Maybe we'd be like Malibu Navy Dress, right? And once again, we wouldn't put hot and delicious anywhere on the website. You'd get the product, have hot and delicious tag in it. You might feel a little bit confused, but you weren't going to go out there then and shop from hot and delicious because guess what? They didn't have a website. You didn't know where it came from. You would come back to Nasty Gal to look for other stuff. And that meant you could charge any price you wanted and you didn't have to mark it down until you felt like it. You know, it's interesting to say that within a period of a few years, I worked for two retailers who had such opposite, such opposite aesthetic and energy, but were only like, I don't know, three, four blocks apart in downtown LA. When I moved from ModCloth to Nasty Gal, people would ask me like, oh, is your commute going to change a lot? Because that's a very LA question to ask. And I said, no. No. They're four blocks apart. I get off of the same subway station either way. People were kind of surprised by that. But they were so close yet so far away in every possible manner that they could be. So two brands with a very different aesthetic, very different branding, everything about them so different. But they essentially had the same model, which one was fast fashion, right? Selling as much stuff as possible as often as possible. Although... We were able to charge higher prices at both of those places because customers thought of them as more premium and special, right? But we were just, I mean, we were carrying a bunch of products from the Mart that you could probably also get at Forever 21. It's very, very interesting. Anyway, all of our product came from the same three sources and we followed the same strategy, First off, we had in-house designed product. At both companies, we had our own in-house design team. This was our least profitable product because we had the expense of a full design and production team. This stuff also had the longest timeline with many stages along the way for concept creation, sketch review, sample review, and fittings. We're talking months, three to six months usually, which once again, in the early days of my career, pretty standard. But in the era of fast fashion, that is like ice age slow. That is a glacier creeping across the continent and carving out valleys and rivers and canyons. That's how slow it is, right? And this stuff, in addition to being our least profitable, taking the longest amount of time, was often, specifically at Nasty Gal, our most expensive stuff on the site. So it wasn't a huge part of our business, but it was always the headline in any marketing message we sent out. Next, there was branded product. This would be stuff that came from outside brands that were real brands. For Love and Lemons, Sister Jane, Lazy Oaf, Unif. This stuff was not incredibly profitable for us. Why? Because we couldn't charge more than anyone else for it, and the markup wasn't great. Furthermore, and this made it even more of a sticky situation, we had to put it on sale at the same time as 
every other retailer out there to ensure that we weren't stuck with it. This was such an important thing that everywhere I worked, the assistant buyers would take turns every week Googling each branded item that we had to see if it was on sale anywhere else. And if it was, then we would immediately reach out to our planner and have it marked down. And then the final part of our product offering was stuff from the Mart. Most of this stuff bore the labels of the original brand, like Hot and Delicious or Honey Punch. We never ordered from Virgins only. It just wasn't the right fit. But in addition to the stuff with the labels, we also had stuff that was private label, which now you know means that it would have a mod cloth or nasty gal label sewn into it, but it wasn't really like made by us or designed by us. It might be, to be fair, developed by me, the buyer. I might've said, here's what I want. Here's a rough sketch. Here's some information I got from my designer. Here's some inspo photos. Can you develop this? And they would make that. I would do that all the time with the Mart vendors. Most of the time it worked out really well, although I still... I know I talked about this in early episodes of Clothes Horse. Uh, One of the most frustrating situations I encountered as a buyer working with the Mart doing product development was we had this best-selling style. It was a cape blazer. So which I say the phrase cape blazer and I'm transported back to 2014 girl boss era LA, like immediately. And our cape blazer was called on the website champagne taste and we sold the shit out of the champagne taste i mean just constantly and so i would update it in new colors i'd be like okay well champagne taste in black has been great let's do it in ivory let's do the seasonal color how about a print and we were working on this marketing story this whole collection that was really inspired by this like luxurious gothy Givenchy collection of that year and that meant we needed of course a velvet champagne taste right so I work with the vendor. We're going to do black velvet and we're going to do red velvet. When you're developing product with a San Pedro Apparel Mart vendor or really any vendor, and it's not going through your designers, how it usually works is you send the information, what you want, you walk through all the specs, everything. Then they send you pricing and either you might you might place the order right away, which I definitely did because this is fast fashion. You, you can't wait a week, right? Like everything has to come really fast. Um, earlier in my career, I would have said, you know what? Thanks for all the pricing. Let's wait until we get the first sample and then I'll write the order. But in the faster and faster and faster fashion world that I was living in, no luxury for that. So I might say, I'm going to write this PO, this order. It's pending sample approval. So when you send me the first sample, if it's bad, I'm going to cancel this order. That's a luxury too. But what if I told you that sometimes you need it so fast that you can't even do that. And so you say, okay, this order is pending TOP approval, which means that we will not see a sample of this until the entire order is already produced. TOP stands for top of production, and it's one piece that's just pulled out of the box of everything else that's gonna ship to us and sent to me at the office to approve. If you're waiting until everything is produced to approve it, I don't need to tell you that stuff gets hairy really fast. So the TOP samples arrive. My associate buyer who was managing outerwear at that point brings them to me and she said, 
I don't know about these. Something seems weird. And I was like, well, here, let me try it on. They look good. And I'm trying it on. And I'm like, okay, it seems fine. Something is weird. Like a piece of this is sticking to my dress. Take it back off. We're like looking at it. She puts it on. She's like, yeah, there's something sticky in here. And we realize that rather than all the edges being sewn, all the hems, all the lining being sewn in, the entire thing has been glued together. So this is a crisis, right? I mean, who wants to buy clothes that are glued together? So we reach out to the vendor. Of course, the vendor is like, what? No, are you sure? And we're like, yeah, it's like super glued. (laughs) Well, it's not glued with super glue. It's just hella glued. Let's say that. And we had to negotiate this situation where they had to take the whole order somewhere domestically in L.A., sew it together. Basically, the glue was still in there, but at least it was sewn. And so delayed delivery. But this is the kind of weird situation you find yourself in when everything has to be just so fast. Not everything that we developed in the Mart went that way, but that was a really extreme case of like, oh my God, we already needed it like five minutes ago and now everything's going wrong. Anyway, even when stuff would arrive glued together and have to be fixed, it was still so profitable and it was so plentiful and in many ways it was just so easy that the product from the mart it really propped up the rest of our business because it was what was really paying the bills what was really selling in a significant way it was the right price at the right margin and it was always new and always fast we actually at both of my jobs had goals in terms of how much we had to buy from the mart each month because it we could always buy more mart stuff than the budget called for but if we bought too much branded product or too much in-house product and not enough mart none of the math would math the mart stuff was the most important piece of the puzzle And really, at both ModCloth and Nasty Gal, this part of our business became bigger and bigger because it was so easy and so cheap and so fast. We had a lot of bestsellers from the Mart at both brands. You've already heard about Champagne Taste. We had tons of dresses at ModCloth that we ordered over and over again that we would recolor, that we would offer in new prints or create updates down the road of them. If you bought them, if you ever bought a maxi dress from either Mod Cloth or Nasty Gal, it probably came from the Mart because we were unable to make them in-house in a way that was profitable because it was so much fabric, but the Mart can make it happen every time. Yes, the quality of all this stuff was mixed. And strangely enough, the stuff we chose at Nasty Gal was always worse quality than the items we chose at Mod Cloth. It was really weird. We also worked with a little bit of a different vendor base there. Also, the sizing was often very limited. We're talking either extra small through large or small to large, but you could find anything at the mart, clothes, lingerie, shoes, accessories, jewelry, cosmetics, and home goods. And I'm here to tell you that plenty of retailers still carry those brands. I see them on ShopBop, like English Factory, for example, is a mart brand. How wild is that? It's on ShopBop. A typical trip to the Mart meant walking around, often for a full eight-hour day from showroom to showroom, looking at the new arrivals. You might find half a dozen new styles at this one, 20 at the next, and so on and so on. And after a while, it would start to feel kind of boring because 
you saw essentially the same thing over and over again. And at that point, pricing becomes the deciding factor. Who has the lowest cost? And maybe who can get it to the fastest? But still, we would trudge along visiting 20, 30, or more places in one day. Each visit was just a quick pop in to browse the racks, talk business a little bit, and then off to the next spot. And then basically the next day, the vendors would drop off samples of everything at our office and we would make our picks. We might be sifting through 100 to 200 different items every time, trying to find the best ones. Then we would write the orders. And usually these items would arrive in our warehouse a couple of weeks later, sometimes the same week. This whole process of going to the mart and finding all the stuff and coming back and sorting through it, we usually did that at least once a week, if not more. There was always someone at the mart. If you went over to someone's desk and they weren't there, you could be like, oh, hey, is Robin at the mart? Okay, cool. Like you always knew. Someone was always there. The San Pedro Apparel Mart, like I said, still exists, and I still see brands I recognize from there in just about every boutique I visit. I, like I said, also see it online. There are online retailers who sell exclusively product from the Mart. Like one that comes to top of mind is called Dressed in Lala, and everything there is made by Mart vendors, even if it's like exclusive to Dressed in Lala. You know, they're running a pretty solid business off of really curating what they buy from the Mart. Of course, over time, online platforms arose that made it easier for online retailers and boutiques alike to order from these brands directly, either from the vendors in the mart, like just at the trade show or from their own website, or directly from the factory. And okay, so the next thing I'm going to story I'm going to tell you is not going to appear in the transcript just because I don't <laughs> I don't want this company to track me down even though I can't even remember their name. But a couple of days ago, I was talking to a client and we were talking about FAIR and she was telling me how this other platform had been advertised to her that would sell you directly to boutique owners, would sell you directly stuff from Cider or Fumoda. Fumoda, I think, gets a pass from a lot of people, but it's the same thing as Cider and Shein. It's like factory direct fast fashion. And this was like a platform that would sell you all of those brands for your boutique. And it even said like, you'll get much higher margin. It's much more profitable, all of that. When she was telling me that, I was like, oh my God, this you just unlocked a memory for me that I think I buried because the whole thing was so frustrating and disturbing. And that was, uh, I guess we'll harken back to maybe like 2018 here, early 2018. I was approached by this recruiter on, you know, via email. Um, who wanted to know, she's like, I work, for, I'm representing this brand based in Utah. Uh, it's a wildly fast growing online retailer of women's clothing. And uh, I think you would be perfect for this job. Basically right now, the owner does all the picking and they want someone else to do it. And I was like, you know, I'm not really looking, but she was so persistent that I was like, okay, fine, so let's let's talk. And basically this online retailer whose name I cannot remember, I've never been served an ad for them. It, I am not their customer. It is very much like a very specific, I hate to say this because I hate being negative about anything that women like in like a trendy way. Um, but you know, there's like that whole like Christian girl autumn kind of thing, pumpkin spice kind of vibe. It's that customer base, right? They're based in Utah. I would suspect a lot of their customers are Mormon women. Everyone on the website had, had blonde hair. And they specialized in this sort of like boho but modest clothing. And the owner would basically go onto this 
platform, online platform every day, literally every day, and order hundreds of fast fashion things, which would arrive in their warehouse like a week or two later. They would launch online, they would sell out, and she would just keep doing this. So they constantly had new stuff, and it was just a steady flow of things. And some of the brands I saw on this platform I recognized from San Pedro Apparel Mart, but others I hadn't heard of before. And it was basically just like a place for online retailers, boutiques to go and order a bunch of new stuff really easily. And the whole job interview process was so annoying. They made me two separate times log into that website with a time limit and pick out as many things as possible in a short amount of time, basically to see if I could curate products as fast as they needed them, which would be like hundreds of styles in like an hour. It was really stressful. Um, by then, I knew exactly what all these brands were doing and why it was problematic and the quality issues and all this stuff. And it just, I kept playing along with it because I just have a hard time saying no to people sometimes. But finally, I said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I do not want to be considered as a candidate anymore. And the recruiter was so mad at me, but I was like, you have made me do two separate tests, have all these different phone calls, and I still haven't talked to the owner of the company yet. Like, how many more months is this going to go on? Anyway, I think I'd kind of filed that away because this website of just like tens of thousands of new products every week really, it really depressed me. And uh, it, it's funny because I think I'd also kind of forgotten about the San Pedro Apparel Mart until I started working on this. And I was like, wow, it's like all part of the same story, right? It's it's the, all the same thing. Like, how can we get new stuff as often as possible, as fast as possible, as cheaply as possible? And there are all these different ways that that happens. One last thing that I want to call out here. We already know that clothing manufacturing is really opaque. Like, most companies have no idea who is making the stuff that they sell, much less the working conditions of the people making these clothes. That's one of the big problems here, right? I mean, it's one of many, but it's a big one. At least when we were making stuff using our in-house production team, they had an idea of who was closest to the factory because we were working with the agent who was kind of the middleman of it all. And that person theoretically would be one person away from the factory, right? And then maybe if that factory had subcontracted, there'd be another person there. But in general, we were closer. Working via the Mart made it even more confusing because often the people we worked with in those showrooms had no idea who was making the clothes. So we had even less visibility. There were like three more people standing between us in the factory, if not more. Some of the stuff may have been made in LA, but most of it was probably made overseas. We really had no idea. And any brand or boutique who was selling those items to you or is selling them to you now doesn't know either, no matter how good their intentions might be. Ultimately, making the fast fashion model profitable is all about saving every penny anywhere you can. We're already seeing that play out in a lot of ways. We talked about this last week, right? Squeezing factories on cost, underpaying everyone involved in making, selling, and shipping the stuff we buy, cutting the quality and fit of every item. Well, spoiler alert, this is going to get even worse as we get to 2020. Just wait, and it's going to get even worse in the post-2020 world. 
at this point when, you know, I'm shopping at the Mart every week and we're launching hundreds of products every week, it was hard to see how anyone could make things faster or cheaper. I mean, Zara was literally finishing garments on ships as they crossed the Pacific Ocean. Like, how... How do you get faster than that? Everything else was shipping on airplanes. Like, what, are we next going to, like, I don't know, like, launch it into space and let gravity deliver it to us? I don't know how much faster it could get. But what if you could get closer to the factory or maybe even own it? Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. 
Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. The story of the Kamani family is often lauded by British tabloids as a rag-to-riches story, a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps story come true. The patriarch of the family, 55-year-old Mahmoud Kamani, is worth more than $1 billion thanks to the wild success of his retail company, Boohoo. He got a start in sort of the UK version of the San Pedro Apparel Mart system, selling low-priced clothing to stall vendors and high street brands like H&M and Primark. But he wondered... How profitable could clothing be if you cut out the middleman and just sold directly to the customers? After all, he was selling these clothes at 25 to 50% of their retail value. What if he could sell them for 100% of that retail value? Well, he'd have at least twice as much money, right? He and designer Carol Kane founded Boohoo in 2006, and Boohoo from moment one was all about being the fastest and cheapest, launching about 3,000 items each week with an average retail price of $17. It's 
infamous for its one pound, the currency, not the weight, one pound bikini. And it's also really well known for its partnership with both influencers and the television show Love Island. In many ways, what Boohoo was doing wasn't much different than anything anyone else on the fast fashion landscape was doing. It was selling lots of new stuff at low prices. But what made it more successful than its competitors was the speed. While Zara, who I have cited as the fastest at that point, right? Like Zara is literally finishing the garments on the boat as it's crossing the ocean. They have managed to cut every extra minute out of the production process. They're landing at about six weeks, which by the way, is very, very fast. Remember in part one when I told you that when we were working on new products in the beginning of my career, we're talking three to six months. <laughs> six weeks is really, really fast. Well, Boohoo said, hold my beer. We're going to do it in two weeks. This, my friends, is fast fashion 2.0. It's a somewhat short-lived and highly shady business model that's spoiler involves a lot of forced labor, wage theft, and exposure to COVID. Everything Boohoo sold, or sells even now, is designed in-house in their headquarters in Manchester, England, where it is also photographed and launched on the site. And most of the product is produced about 100 miles away in Leicester. Essentially, Boohoo was able to say, we can get product on the site in two weeks because it was making everything domestically. Nothing was shipping overseas. There was no need to do the finishing on the boat or pay for an airplane ride for a shipment because it was being made right there. It could ship from the factory to the warehouse in about two hours. So in some ways, Boohoo was saving money by not even having to pay for all that freight and duties. But more importantly, it was getting stuff so fast. Anything that Boohoo isn't making in Leicester is usually made in London or Manchester. So it's all it's all completely domestic, which sounds like a really dreamy situation, right? In fact, in the first year or so of working on Close Horse, the kind of responses I would get to posts were always really predictable, right? There'd be someone who would show up and say, like, well, talking about fast fashion is classist. Yep, that would be there. And then there would be the person who would show up and they would say... Ah, uh, well, this wouldn't happen if we made everything in the U.S. Oh, man. Lady, I'm going to curl your hair with the stories I can tell you about making stuff in the U.S. You know, like, like that's the thing. We think making stuff domestically is the cure for it all. And really, I think the cure for it all is uh, getting rid of greed. And I don't know how we're going to do that. <sighs> okay, so there is a reason why very little fast fashion is made in the US or the UK. And that is, dun dun da price. Because these countries have a higher minimum wage that cannot compete with the minimum wages of Bangladesh and China. Also, the US and the UK have more intense laws protecting workers. The issues of cost and worker safety have moved most production overseas. Yet somehow... Boohoo was able to make this work, growing at an exponential rate while supposedly also being super profitable. Along the way, it acquired other brands like Pretty Little Thing, Coast, and even Nasty Owl. And 
in next week's episode, I'll tell you more about that acquisition, which was really, it kind of started a big sea change in how people viewed retail and online retail and maybe even fast fashion as a as a business worth investing in, at least for a while. Of course, that would change too. But when I heard that Boohoo was bidding on Nasty Gal in the bankruptcy process, I I was kind of surprised because I Googled Boohoo, went to their website, and the most expensive thing I could find on the site was like $24 and it was a dress. And I couldn't, I couldn't help but laugh sort of bitterly, thinking about how everything we had sold was probably three to four times that price. And even all that stuff we were buying at the Mart, you know, was two to three times that price. Like couldn't even compete with the pricing of this Boohoo stuff. And I thought so much about how our CEO and a lot of the executive leadership just really, they just disdained the Mart, right? They thought that stuff was so gross and beneath them. They didn't even want to see us wearing it in the office, even though we sold it day in, day out. And it, they didn't look down on it because it was unethical potentially or bad for the environment or made of synthetic fibers that would shed microplastics. No, they looked down on it because it was cheap. And to them, it had no value. It was trashy, right? And here was Boohoo, even cheaper making the stuff that we bought at the San Pedro Apparel Mart seem fancy as shit. Here <laughs> was swooping in to buy Nasty Gal. Like the the irony of it all was not lost on me. But that was my first time being aware of Boohoo. And after that, Boohoo would begin a huge expansion into the United States. Like Nasty Gal was sort of their jump off of working with the U.S. customer. And uh, eventually they became even bigger here under their own name. Industry publications cited Boohoo as this genius company that was somehow able to magically produce tons of product domestically, the dream, right? And still sell at these very low prices. Once again, one pound bikinis. It's essentially like saying, here's a $2 bathing suit. The math doesn't math. I don't know why anybody, anyone who had any sense about how business works, thought that this business model made sense. Maybe they just didn't want to think about it more deeply, but the number of articles I have read over the years talking about how Boohoo's business model is so genius, I hope the people who wrote those are embarrassed now. Still, it was producing all this product domestically. By 2019, about 80% of its inventory was being produced in Leicester alone. Meanwhile, and once again, no one seemed to question this, at least for a while. Competitors like ASOS and Misguided had pulled out of the factories in Leicester over concerns of unsafe working conditions, tax fraud, forced labor, and illegally low wages. But Boohoo just doubled down, and anytime one of their competitors moved their production out of a, a space there, they moved on in. Well, I said no one was questioning it, but Actually, more and more people were starting to question how Boohoo could make so much product so cheaply and so fast and still adhere to labor laws. Well, they were able to do that because they weren't. <laughs> 
If you're unfamiliar with Leicester as a big clothing manufacturing hub, don't feel bad because you would only know about this place if you really, well, if you were from there or if you are really deep into this stuff and or have read as many articles about Boohoo as I have over the years. I found a great Financial Times article about the issues with clothing production in Leicester as a whole, not even specifically around Boohoo, and I'm going to share that with you in the show notes. It's a long read. I really think you should go read it, but I'm also going to read a few paragraphs from it to you right now because I think it really... It really summarizes what's going on there and why it's bad. The title itself tells you a lot about what you will find in this article. The title is Dark Factories, Labor Exploitation in Britain's Garment Industry. And it says, how is it possible to make cheap clothes in a country where the minimum wage for over 25s is $7.83 an hour? Online retailers' nimbleness and lower overheads allow them to pay more for products while still giving consumers a good price. In addition, there are manufacturers that use technology to make clothes more efficiently. But factory owners in Leicester say some take a different route, one more reminiscent of the 19th century than the 21st. They call these places dark factories. I'm just going to interject here. That part where it said online retailers' nimbleness and lower overheads allow them to pay more for products while still giving consumers a good price. This is the argument that we even see now from Shein, right? Like, oh, well, we cut out the middleman. We go factory direct. And that's how we can offer you these extra low prices while still being profitable. Here's the deal, everyone. We're going to talk about this more in next week's episode, but ultimately, The idea that somehow selling online means you can pay more and charge less and it works out, it's turning out not to be true. And a big part of that, among many things, is the just immense volume of returns that all of these websites experience. We're going to talk about Boohoo's returns a little bit in this episode, but in general, like returns, it turns out, can cut your revenue by 30%. Returns, it turns out, can cost you even more to process. Returns, it turns out, bleed bleed the profit out of your business and actually force you to raise prices. And that's just the beginning of it. You know, I think that this narrative for a long time was that running an e-commerce business, meaning only selling online, was instantly more profitable because you didn't have stores. Stores are expensive, but e-commerce only brands are not, quite making all the savings that they think because logistics like shipping and receiving and inventory management and of course returns cost a lot more than I think anyone expected. And so this constant disclaimer that I see from online only retailers that they can offer really low prices and it can still somehow be ethical, uh, It doesn't add up and it doesn't make sense. The more you know about how this industry works, the more for me, it becomes a red flag. Okay, back to this article. Part of Lester's garment industry has become detached from UK employment law, a country within a country, as one factory owner puts it, where five pounds an hour is considered the top wage, even though that is illegal. 
Doshi, not his real name, says he has worked in places with blocked fire escapes, old machines, and no holiday or sick pay. There are garment factories that follow the law, but a perceived culture of impunity, as a 2018 government report puts it, has created a bizarre microeconomy where larger factories using machines are outcompeted by smaller rivals using underpaid humans. And while some retailers blame unethical factory owners, the factories say retail's relentless push for cheap prices makes it impossible to improve. Perhaps the strangest thing about this labor exploitation is that it is an open secret. Central government knows, local government knows, retailers know. When I came to the UK and I discovered what was going on in Leicester, it was mind-blowing, says Anders Christensen, who was chief executive of high street retailer New Look from 2013 until September last year. This is happening in front of your eyes and nobody's doing anything, he remembers thinking. How can society accept it? Not even society. How can government accept it? It is sad. I have not spoken about it for a long time because it frustrated me so much. Seriously, go read this article because it talks about all of the external factors that are allowing this situation to continue. Pressure for low prices from retailers, consumer pressure for low-cost clothing, the government sort of overlooking all of this in order to protect jobs. It's such a complicated issue, but it wouldn't be happening if everyone involved was complicit. And that includes customers, right? Like when you start to realize that the prices don't add up, yet you continue to buy things for those prices, demand those prices, you are complicit in this as well. Ultimately, Boohoo was busted a bunch of times around 2020 when news emerged that the factories it was using were forcing employees to work without COVID protections in place. Even if they were sick, they were still required to come in and work. And on top of that, these factories were paying below minimum wage or straight up committing wage theft and using forced labor. It blew up. Every time one of these revelations would emerge, Boohoo would be kind of like, oh, we didn't know. Wow, oopsies. But here's the thing. And this this goes for any retailer out there, okay? Boohoo does know that this is happening in one way or another. They want products so fast that workers can't socially distance themselves or take sick time. They want products so cheap that factories can only pay workers below minimum wage or commit wage theft. By asking for so much, so cheap, and so fast, they are complicit in the abuse of the humans making their stuff. And they know it. Even they know. The math doesn't math. Last year, after being called out over and over again about this kind of stuff, Boohoo finally bought its own factory in Leicester, of course, and made a lot of promises to do better from a human rights and workers' rights perspective. I'm not so sure they can make that work without raising prices, and I'm going to be keeping my eye on the situation. Furthermore, their sales were not good for 2022 and 2023, I do think, It's a few factors here. One, their bad reputation is catching up with them. Two, their customers are going to Shein. And three, they probably have raised prices slightly enough that makes them not competitive with Shein. And that's something to keep in mind for when we get to fast fashion 3.0 as well. 
Also, on top of that, Boohoo is dealing with a lot of returns. They said it's really cutting into their profit margin, their revenue as a whole. It always comes back to the returns, I swear. They're promising a better year this year by cutting costs. Uh, They haven't had a great 2023 so far. So I don't know about any of this. I don't know how, like I said from the start, how they can be manufacturing in the UK and then sell stuff for like two bucks. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. I guess they're still trying to figure out that their business model can never successfully involve ethical domestic production. But if they want to, they can call me and I'll just tell them that over the phone. (laughs) Because it's very clear, like something has to give, right? If you don't want to abuse humans, then you need to raise your prices. Which brings me to the US version of Fast Fashion 2.0. Fashion Nova. A glowing 2019 piece on website edited declared, there's fast, then there's Fashion Nova fast. Fashion Nova, which is based in LA, can design a product and have a sample within the same 24 hours. And then within the next 24 hours, that same garment is photographed on a model and launched on the site. Fashion Nova can usually receive this product within two weeks. How do they do it? Well, get ready for a familiar story here, or at least a story filled with intense, dark foreboding. You already know how this is going to go, right? Fashion Nova relies on a network of 1,000 manufacturers in LA, where it's based, to make most of its product. Not dissimilar to Boohoo at all. In fact, possibly even slightly faster because it's all in the same city. This domestic manufacturing means that product can be available for sale in just a few days after it is just a mere concept. Like it happens that fast. And Fashion Nova, much like Boohoo, is all about cheap, new, and fast. And also like Boohoo, it relies heavily on social media marketing and partnerships with celebrities like Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B. The brand was founded in 2006 by Richard Sagian, and yeah, in case you were wondering, he's a billionaire now too. There's something about people becoming billionaires super fast, while the people who are most responsible for their extreme wealth are getting paid below minimum wage to do the work that really drives the sales, right? It's dark, man. (laughs) I mean, it's not unlike Amazon, like unlike any big business out there, but it is it never ceases to just paralyze me with a combination of rage and despair. Anyway, in an interview in 2018, the founder, Richard Sagian, now a billionaire, he declared that $200 jeans were over, saying of his customer, they need to buy a lot of different styles and probably only wear them a couple times, you know, so their Instagram feeds can stay fresh. I hope Fashion Nova is sending an edible arrangement to Instagram every week too. And not one of those little ones in a mug. It needs to be the big one in the vase. I think we can all agree. Anyway, the jeans that sold best for Fashion Nova at that time when he said that $200 jeans were over, they retailed for $24.99. Now, much like Boohoo, we have to ask ourselves, how could someone make jeans in LA that sell for $24.99 and are profitable enough to make a billionaire out of the founder of a company in a relatively short period of time? Like, 
The math doesn't math because the minimum wage in California is $15.50. At the time he gave that interview, I think it was $15. Labor costs more money in LA, period. And we also have to keep in mind that all of the fabrics and trims, they have to be imported from overseas, which adds a lot of cost too. So how is this working out? Well, surprise, surprise, but you didn't see this coming It's not working out. In 2019, the U.S. Labor Department revealed the findings of an investigation it had been working on since 2016. Fashion Nova owed more than $3.8 million in back wages to hundreds of workers that had been making its clothing during the period from 2016 to 2019. The factories that Fashion Nova was using were paying their workers as little as $2.77 per hour to make clothing. Of course, Representatives for Fashion Nova feigned shock over this revelation. Like, oh my, what? Oopsie, huh? We didn't know. What? We're busy. But come on. When you're asking for prices so low, <laughs> you are knowingly asking for people to not be paid or work in unsafe conditions or work too many hours. And Fashion Nova could have at any time visited any of the facilities where their clothing was being made just to ensure that everything was on the up and up. After all, it wasn't like they had to get on a plane to see the people making their clothes. They could literally catch a ride across town. If they cared, they could find out. They, more than any other retailer out there, kind of had the best setup for transparency because it's happening right there in front of them. But they chose not to check. They chose not to look. Fashion Nova, of course, after being caught, has promised to do better in the future and claims to back legislation that will ensure garment workers in L.A. are paid the minimum wage at minimum. It also started a toll-free hotline that workers can call to report wage theft. But here's the thing. You know what they did? They moved a lot of their manufacturing out of L.A., coincidentally, and more of it's going overseas. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Because that's the thing. You can't offer the prices that they're offering and pay people a living wage. We say it all the time. I'm going to say it again. It's cheap because someone didn't get paid. You know, I was having a conversation with someone on Instagram today that I really loved that was basically like, if you are supporting fast fashion, if you're buying it and you're buying a lot of it and you're like, I don't care, I don't wanna hear what you have to say, la, 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 you're turning your back on workers all across the world. And if you're a member of the working class, which if you come to me and say the only clothing you can afford is fast fashion, then I know that you are one of us, you are part of the working class. Why would you be turning your back on people around the world who face the same challenges you face, who are also suffering the repercussions of greed in an unfair world, right? Why would you be okay with people somewhere else suffering? Fashion Nova still, you know, it it remains kind of sketchy. This year, it was fined $4.2 million by the Federal Trade Commission for blocking and deleting negative product reviews on its website. And customers who bought these poorly reviewed products can be reimbursed via the fund created by that fine. So yeah, Fashion Nova. I mean, I could go on. Like, listen, 
I know a lot about Fashion Nova that I have heard from vendors, from friends who work in the industry in LA. Remember, it's a small world if you've worked in this industry. People who have interviewed there, people who have worked on the other side of it, like on the factory side. And I don't want to say all that stuff on here because I don't want Fashion Nova to sue me. But like, I have to say that Fashion Nova is probably the fast fashion brand of all of them that I actually hold in the least level of regard. Like I am just like, get rid of Fashion Nova, please go away. I mean, there are others down there at the bottom with them, but Fashion Nova to me, I'm sure I feel the same way about Boohoo, are just disgusting, just terrible, rotten business models. And I hate that the founders of these two companies are billionaires because there's just so much exploitation built into that business. And just making clothes that aren't going to last and encouraging customers to wear them only once or twice. That's gross. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment. I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love 
and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. What have we learned so far? Because we're kind of winding down here for this week. Well, for one, fast fashion 1.0 and 2.0 are very similar in many ways, most notably that both versions of the business model kind of buy and sell product the old-fashioned way. The company places an order, the product arrives in its warehouse, and then it's shipped out to customers or stores from there. Put a pin in that because... Guess what? When we get to fast fashion 3.0, this changes, right? I mean, you kind of already know that, but this is where that's going to be the big shift. 
What makes fast fashion 2.0 faster is the quicker turnaround time in production from Zara's six weeks, gosh, what a dinosaur, to the two weeks or less timeframe of Fashion Nova and Boohoo. And if you had told me even 10 years ago that we could make clothes in two weeks, I would have just... I would be like, go away, you don't know what you're talking about, (laughs) seriously. And the last thing that we've learned so far is that these companies were able to pull off this short time frame because they produced domestically. But that became problematic because the low prices they offer customers don't make sense when you have to pay the legal minimum wage in LA or the UK. So naturally, that didn't go well. What really would make sense is if your business was headquartered in a country that had a very low minimum wage, not a great record on human or worker rights, and maybe even like some forced labor in play. And so next week, we're gonna talk all about that. We're gonna talk about the wall that fast fashion hit in the years leading up to 2020. Oh, it was a dark time to work in that world. And all the things they tried during that period to try to get us to buy more stuff. We've got greenwashing up on the scene in a big way. Cause marketing, you know, like proceeds from this special collection are donated to this charity. Oh, so much of that. I've worked on so many of those dumb projects. Rental, some of them got desperate and we're like, let's open rental, uh, resale, and so much more. And then we'll brace ourselves for the arrival of the Shein business model. And we'll talk about the implications that Fast Fashion 3.0 has for all of us, regardless of where we live, how much money we have, or what we wear on our bodies. I want to wrap this all up by just explaining why I talk about this stuff. I've been making clothes horse for more than three years now. And Sometimes, often, yeah, most of the time, I've had to cover some really grim, depressing, infuriating, frustrating, did I say depressing yet? Can I say it again? Depressing things. I mean, going back to the early days, our three-parter about denim production, man, I have nightmares about that. All the conversations with the Orr Foundation, just learning more about forced labor and the Uyghur Muslims and waste and plastic pollution. I mean, I have been in it for years. It's a lot. It definitely takes a toll sometimes, but well, I keep talking about it. Why? Because we have to talk about fast fashion and really fast everything. I've been trying to come up with a snappier name than fast everything, but then I also kind of like fast everything. We'll see. We'll see where I go with that. In fact, to say that we have to talk about fast fashion, fast everything, it understates it. It's not a have to, it's a must. We must talk about fast everything. It's never just clothes or shopping, no matter how vapid people might say it is. I often think that's because it's associated with women and therefore it's not as important. But we all know by now, This is a massive industry with a massive impact on everyone and everything. It's no just clothes or just shopping, and it never has been. In this real-life version of mall madness that we've all been playing our whole lives, 
it's just like over the past few years, it got it turned into a faster mall madness where you're like practically dizzy with how fast it's all happening. We are in the midst of an environmental and human rights disaster that will honestly only get worse if we if we ignore it because we've been ignoring it for a long time. And many of us have been ignoring it because we didn't know. But now we know and we have to talk about it. The fashion and retail industry intersects with so many important issues that affect every single living thing on this planet. Environmental and social justice, climate change, the global plastic pollution crisis. Yeah, you know, you know when I talk to people about how plastic pollution is connected to clothing, it always blows their minds. That makes no sense to them. And I say, oh, but what if I told you that 65 to 70% of the clothing that is being made and sold to us right now is synthetic? And what if I told you that they start as the same plastic fibers? They just zhuzh them up to make them feel different. Yeah, that's where the plastic pollution is coming from. And all those stupid poly bags that the clothes ship in, among other things, right? We've also got workers' rights, income inequality, water consumption and pollution. And that's just the beginning of the list here. It's so many issues. It will never, ever be just clothes. Like I said, it never was, and it certainly will never be in the future. It's a lot to think about, right? This is some heavy stuff. It's a lot to tackle. It's a lot to digest and process and sometimes even grieve. I've definitely had days where I have cried over the things I have learned about this. And those are days where I never even thought about quitting because it motivated me even more to tell you all about it. You need to know. We all need to know. Yeah, it would be easier for all of us to say, oh, well, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, so... I'm just going to go ahead and keep doing what I'm doing. There's a lot of that on TikTok right now, let me tell you. Or my impact will never be as big as Amazon, so who cares? That's another comment that would show up a lot in the early days of Close Horse on Instagram. And I would always be like, I don't know what to say to these people. Now I know what to say to them. But it took me a while. Or this is another one. Oh, this one still shows up all the time. Sorry, but don't put the responsibility on individuals. Well. Guess what, y'all? The responsibility, it's on us and on these companies. We don't get out of this without making a lot of change, too. That's the thing. We could just pretend that we don't know what's happening and carry on as we have been and get another brunch dress and, I don't know, place a Shein Hall order and just, you know, just live, right? But when we ignore it, when we live that life, put on our brunch dress and move forward as if we don't know what's happening— it gets worse, right? We can't let big business or the fashion industry operate on the honor system. I think we've all learned that by now. We cannot cut them any slack because without our involvement, it just doesn't work. They don't think about the big picture. That's how you get to where we are now. Here's the magic about talking about fast fashion. When you talk to the people in your life about it, they start talking to other people they know. And those people talk to the people they know. And it spreads and spreads. Think about the stuff that I've told you that you told someone else, right? This is how it goes. This is what motivates me. Every time I hear from one of you that you learned something from me and you told someone else about it and this is what they did, 
I, that like makes my day. I need to hear a story like that every day because I've been using TikTok lately and the pushback there is so brutal. (laughs) I need to hear more success stories. I think we all do, right? To keep us going. I need to think of a new way for us to start sharing those stories so we can all see it and feel empowered to keep talking about fast fashion. When a lot of people are talking about this stuff, major change starts to happen because it just spreads and spreads. And this change happens via government policy and the rise of new social trends involving a shift in our consumption habits. Remember at the top of the episode when I talked about how Instagram really changed the way we consume clothing? We, all of us, you and me and everyone we know, we have the power to change that because we already did change it without knowing Let's change it into something better. When people aren't talking about this stuff, nothing ever changes because no one knows what's going on. No one's talking. So talk about it. And don't be afraid to be repetitive because humans generally need, myself included, to hear things a few times before it really sinks in. And share your own personal stories. Sharing our stories from our lives allows others to see the true impact of fast fashion. And it helps them understand how it impacts them and the people they love. Our personal stories unlock doors and open ears. That's why I share so much about my own experiences working in the industry from you know my early days as a retail sales associate through all of my years working and buying because putting a human perspective on it makes it more real, brings it closer into our hearts. Studies have shown that when we're telling a story, our brain waves synchronize with the person listening to the story. And that's, that's how true connections are built. That's how we get in sync with one another. Our experiences and stories build trust and evoke emotion and get change started. So let's talk about fast fashion and fast everything with everyone we know. I know I'll be continuing to do it, and I'm excited to hear about all the successes you have when you're doing it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. Written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you liked what you're hearing, uh, please leave a rating or a review, but most importantly, tell all your friends. That's, that's how we get more people involved in what we're doing. and guess what? We have to get more people involved in what we're doing. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast, or you can buy the $2.99 per month Apple premium subscription, which give you, gives you access to all of our archives, but most importantly, just says, hey, I'm supporting close horse. And that's pretty cool. And thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music, for our audio support, and for helping me try to figure out a monitor that doesn't strain my eyes. All right. See you all next week. Bye. Bye.